HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. for coming to 100 Bogart today. Thank you for joining us for Co-Ferment. We're really, really excited. Uh, I hope that you have all had a successful time braving the rain and coming out here and uh, tasting some of these amazing drinks that we've had so far. Um, Co-Ferment is an event presented by Heritage Radio Network. My name's Katie Mosman-Wadler and I'm the executive director. And uh, we are a member-supported 501c3 nonprofit organization. So we really, really appreciate all of your support. Also, if you're interested in membership and you haven't become a member yet, you can see Hannah at the check-in table anytime. Um, and I also wanted to give a quick shout out to the space that we're in. Uh, 100 Bogart is a co-working space, happens to be where we have our office. It's an amazing community. Um, we have co-working, private offices, lots of event spaces, and a really awesome team who supports us and runs everything behind the scenes. So uh, we have free day passes to give away if you want to come check it out and work with us. Um, also, um, they've been just overall really, really supportive of the art scene in Bushwick. And so um, any interest you have in like putting on arts or music related events, this is a great place to check out. So keep them in mind um, and we really appreciate them uh, giving us the space tonight. And um, one more announcement, if you are enjoying tonight's event, we have a big, big party coming up on December 3rd. It's our annual gala for Heritage Radio Network. It's called Winter in the Garden, and we would absolutely love to see you there. You can find info on our Facebook page or on Eventbrite. Um, and so definitely hit us up for details about that. Uh, without further ado, I'd love to pass it off to tonight's moderators. We have Jordan Werner-Berry and Dan Pucci, and they'll introduce the panel. Thanks, everyone. Good, right here? Okay. <clears throat> okay, I just thank you all for coming, guys, tonight. I hope this is a really fun discussion we're going to have about uh, fermentation and beverages and kind of the liminal space between uh, cider, wine, and beer. That's kind of the idea of it tonight, and I'm hoping you guys can really enjoy that. Um, so, joining us my left is uh, Lauren Grimm, uh, of co founder of Grimm Brewing. Uh, they're right over here, they're the new brewery in the border of Williamsburg and Bushwick. Uh, then to her left is Vanessa Vargin. Uh, she's the uh, assistant cider maker and uh, grunt laborer for Black Duck Cidery and the Finger Lakes. Uh, and then to her left is uh, Krista Shr uh, Scruggs. She's the vigneron of Zappa Wines in Vermont and, and Texas. And to her left is Derek Trowbridge, uh, owner and winemaker of Old World Winery in Sonoma County. So 
So the idea we have behind this event tonight, we called it co-fermentation because all of these producers are doing weird things with more than one thing in some way or another. And all of the products that you tried over there are deviations on the classic expectations of what beer, cider, and wine can and should be. Um, our first question is, how much do the ex expectations of those categories fuel the products that you're making? Who wants to go first? <laughs> that was a big question. Derek, go ahead. Derek, looking for it. <laughs> yeah? Okay, there we go. Um, very interesting because I would say that, I, you know, so I, I come at this from the artist's point of view instead of the business, businessman's point of view. They would, a businessman would probably take and find what the perceptions are, what the need is, and fill that need. I've done it backwards where I just sort of see what I dig and then focus on that like an artist would as far as a, a painting. You know, you, you, know, you just kind of do what your path is. So... But I took, you know, products that I'd seen before, like, uh, like, um, uh, not, um, geez, the sparkling red, the Italians, but I can't think of it. Anyway, at the moment, too much talking today over at the raw event. My brain's fading. But uh, there's a sparkling red that uh, Lambrusco from uh, from Italy, and I saw that, and I was like, that's kind of cool. And in tasting my the, the red wine that I grow and make, I thought, you know, that could do something cool like that. So it was just sort of the spirit of uh, experimentation. same in regards to being experimental and making choices from an artistic point of view and for my palate and not for what something should be, especially for me farming and making wine in Vermont and working with certain varieties that already leads to certain, and working with non-vinifera, for example, I, I felt that if our people already have, I'm not, I'm not going to fit expectation of wine in one way, we're working certain varieties and varieties in a region that is still coming up. Um, what the fuck went on is work with apples too, and because I'm already not gonna, I'm already not fitting an expectation, so why not just have fun with it? Uh, so for Black Tap, I guess uh, we make ciders and Perry. I speak to the Perry tonight. Perry's more of an unknown, I guess. There's not a lot of expectations, I would say, in the U.S. 
Uh, but in terms of cider and pear, it's very much, we're more echoing uh, European farmhouse style beverages. Um, but expectations, we don't really worry about that. It's whatever fruit we have available that year, we're letting the fruit speak for itself. Um, it's, it's really what the fruit in the weather, uh, in the, the yeast that year, want, what, they, what it wants to give us. I think that's a great segue into talking more about the raw materials and how you're experimenting with sort of what you end up with in each situation. Um, Chris, so you using apples, Vanessa talking about the differences in harvest and what you end up with. Um, love for each of you to elaborate a little bit on how the raw materials are driving even more than kind of experimentation. Well, for me, how this came about with working with doing, making these Venice ciders is that I lost um, about two acres of a crop and um, of, of grapes. And luckily to be living in Vermont, there's wild apples growing everywhere. And for me, it's more about the fermentation than the varieties or the fruit that I'm working with. And there are times that I feel lucky to be in a region that one grape can be insurance for the other. There'll be, this year I'm gonna have about 80 bushels of apples. So I'm working with 80 bushels and last year's at 10. And um, this was a, but also this was a great year for grapes, but a horrible year for apples here on the East Coast. And I think each year that will vary and I'll have more of an insider. So some years I won't have any, but I think I'm lucky to have that as an option, which most regions don't. I love that. That's a, to talk about farming, there's always loss, right? right. Um, the, the old farmer adage is, well, there's always next year, you know? <laughs> and so I, talking about just you, the Basque variety that I have, I actually didn't want to make that wine, actually. Um, I, so it was my aunt's, it was in my, a place that my aunt was uh, had, and her brother was managing it, and the guy that was getting the grapes before told me it was available and said, you should, you should be making that. And I was like, I don't want to go deal with the family. You know, so we got family issues and things of this <laughs> nature, and I was like, I'm not going there. And then all of a sudden, the ownership changed, and where she took over and... Um, my cousin, uh, this, the guy, uh, was kind of out of the picture. And so then it became this thing that I could do. And then um, it was about learning, letting that variety speak to me because I didn't know what the hell this was. It's a very weird variety as far as even the way it acts uh, uh, in every way and the way it presses even. And so the first year I was scared and I just blended it with Zinfandel. And then just sort of learned. It was just a process of what do you got, you know? So it's a really different process of experimentation where you're just like, you're using somebody else's really well-made, <laughs> you, know, uh, you know, malt. Um, and in many, you know, sometimes you're looking for a less well-made malt, but that w would be with a reason behind it. Um, but, um, but it's a, a very different process. And so like the experimentation is coming um, from sourcing Uh, even though we do grow our own fruit, um, it's the same way for sourcing. Um, if we're having a, a light fruit year on our own orchard, 
uh, with our cider apples. Uh, we do have to source more wild fruit, so it's kind of finding the pockets of land that maybe um, they didn't have a late frost and there's going to be heavier fruit there. Um, so it's kind of uh, walking around in the forest, uh, figuring out what you can use that year. And of course, taste testing everything and making sure uh, it's it's really nasty and perfect for fermenting. Yeah. Um, so on that same topic of uh, perceptions, um, how does price point and perception to the customer, uh, how do you frame these things, these kind of unusual products that are kind of different? How do you talk about them to people who have different ideas of who coming at this from a more conventional standpoint? Um, Sometimes people come into our cidery and think uh, that we pump out uh, and are bottling every month. And we have to remind them that, no, this is similar to winemaking and that you have harvest once a year and that's it. So uh, you're getting, um, you're definitely getting a specialized product. And no, we're not uh, making something new every two weeks to keep the customers coming in. And if we run out of that uh, Perry that you thought was the best uh, thing you ever drank, it's like, sorry, you're going to have to wait and wait for the next vintage. Uh, uh, yeah, I like that question. So, um, I, you know, I, I've been selling natural wine for 20 years and nobody wanted it. And so it was a really hard thing to deliver, and there's a certainly no value added at that point. So it was just like keep ratcheting it down. Like, how can I get, you know, this wine into people's hands and get them to just drink it? You know, and so keep bringing that price point to where I can still make a living, but um, but also you know self market, if you will, by in, by having the price low instead of spending money on PR and that kind of thing and pushing it out there. It was more just like get it in people's hands. But that was, that was a really difficult process for most of those 20 years until about the last five when, you know, natural wine became a thing. And Isabel Ligeron started the, you know, that really helped me because I think in 2013 I was ready to kill myself. It was just really not fun. And, uh, and I met Isabel and I sort of, she was a shining light doing the raw wine event, which we just had here in New York. And so that's been, since then it's been really great. I'm still navigating that right now <laughs> um, with uh, my wines finally going to be available publicly next year. My 2017 vintage only didn't really get to be publicly released, and now this upcoming vintage will. And I'm opening um, with Shaxbury at Tasting Room um, in Burlington, but that's honestly the conversation I'm having right now via email with them, this price point, um, and especially with... I only have would have 500 cases, and and I'm working in two states with two different and foraging one and farming the other, and you know setting that value, also educating people why you would be paying this to respect that works that goes into all of us do. But I'm I don't know the answer to that, but I'm navigating it right now. <laughs> beer is kind of it's uh, hopefully you guys can hear me. Um, uh, beer is kind of like the every man's beverage. You know, it has a long history. Um, of you know going from your mass lager that's just you know really cheap um, all the way up to now having really fancy barrel aged beers that people spend tons of money on. Um, so at our brewery, we make 
all different styles of beer and they range in prices and I think it's a you know I mean pricing is just about uh, making back our money that we put into it and also uh, like you know having more of a structure I mean we're making like pilsners imperialist outs we make a ton of IPAs all of these are not mixed fermentation beers and then we have like we put out like uh, a little while ago some um, uh, like three-year-old barrel-aged beers, but um, they're also like still relatively, uh, you know, well priced for what they are. I was like, I think we should have paid, spent, put more money, <laughs> price them higher. But um, <laughs> but uh, the the beer industry is a crazy and weird space right now because of the kind of IPA phenomenon, and which is a whole other subject. But um, um, yeah, like what. How do you price these things? You know, to me, my heart is in these like really, uh, you know, time-intensive barrel-aged beers, um, but they're not necessarily as like exciting to people as an, a really good IPA. <laughs> so, um, so there, it's like all over the place. You know. Along those lines, we're thinking a little bit about the customer that you're bringing in and the drinking culture that comes along with these things. So like people that line up, Lauren, for beer releases versus people looking for unicorn bottles of unreleased wines or trying to get Christmas stuff anywhere but here. Um, how does the experimentation affect kind of those, that kind of rabid fan base and how does that show up in each of the beverages that you guys are producing? into the community they develop as well. Yes. Right. Well, thank God for the rabid fan base. <laughs> That's all I have to say. So, <laughs> right on. Yeah, you guys. <laughs> so, uh, we, what's really bizarre is that you know I live right in the middle of wine country, and you know, quote unquote, quote unquote, wine country, Sonoma County, and most people turn in the driveway and the, some often leave. You know, they just like don't. You know, my place is rustic. It's not you know a ten million dollar tasting room. And um, so we actually, what we appreciate the most and we, what we seem to get more of these days, especially this last two years, people from Montreal. Mm. Like, it's bizarre. It just, it, I love it. And they just are, we just want this, you know? They, they want what Krista does. They want things that are totally unique and have an experience instead of a product, you know? And, and, uh, and so that, we just, you know, then there's those people that are in between, but we just pray for the next one that comes in and shares their love. It's like, okay, we live for those moments. <laughs> Cute. I'm getting caught up on the rabid fan base thing, yeah. and I forget the question. <laughs> well, I think it's about um, how, how do you work on developing community, and how do you guys work on, um, and how, how do you relate to um, kind of people wanting Again, there are lots of uh, rabid fan bases of beer, and I, I don't know. It's um, we have been in business for six years, but we only opened our um, physical space four months ago, and uh, so it's been just four months of me getting to know how people drink beer. And um, on the weekends, we get people from across the Northeast um, driving to our brewery to get IPAs. And then with sour beers, 
people don't want to stand in a line. Um, it's just about coming there and enjoying oneself and experiencing a, a delightful moment. Uh, and it, it, so it's like a really different like mode with uh, both of these um, customers. We can, uh, so our, our tasting room is similar in that it's like kind of down this gravel road. It's a scary looking barn. There's like some cats that come out and say hi. So, and some of, and we're right near the Finger Lakes Wine Trail. So some of the people that come in, they've got stickers on. They just had some sweet wine. Um, so it's very different kind of customer base than uh, when we distribute to the city and uh, people kind of know what to expect. Um, so it, it's, it's difficult some, sometimes describing what you make, why you make it. Um, to people who are just going, they're riding around in a limousine and tasting at the wineries. Um, so I don't know, it, it's a challenge, but you kind of have to figure out where they're coming from, what they drink, and kind of describe what you make to them uh, in the best way possible. For me, well, this year has been a whirlwind for me, <laughs> um, to say the least, and to go into with opening. Um, cellar and tasting room and the opening two weeks going into also this vintage knowing that I'm also I am allocated which is a awesome but strange place to be I had made it explicit choice to uh, put aside um, the wine purposely putting aside a certain amount of wines that are solely will we only will only be available in Vermont to serve a community that has supported me so far so for me it's more important for people to come to Vermont where I'm farming and making wine than to have my wine spread out across the United States and without context and not being able to tell that story with these wines. And so that's, and that's basically my plan for the near future. We aged vintage to put a, a large amount on the side for the tasting room in Vermont and in Texas and, you know, you know, and let the rest, you know, go out to New York and California, but trying to have more control of the conversation of these, these, these vintage ciders and wines and ciders that I'm making about telling that story for each of you and the importance of meeting people where they're at with what you've said. Do you find yourselves needing to use references from other drinks, other categories? So, Krista, you use the language Venice ciders. Um, Lauren, if you have a wine drinker that comes in, how do you describe your beer? And with cider and Perry, which one do you find yourself kind of having to explain from more often? ask people if they come into the tasting room if uh, they like dry um, sometimes John the owner even asks them if they like cider because sometimes they just stop you know it's one of the places <laughs> they stop uh, so you kind of figure out what they usually drink um, if, if they drink cider uh, you ask what kind if it's angry orchard you say this is the opposite end of the spectrum <laughs> You may not like it, but try it anyways. Um, so very often we're figuring out what they usually drink. If they're wine drinkers, we'll be like, well, do you like tannins? Uh, do you like uh, really dry wines? And we're, we try to compare our cider to that. We do everything pretty much bone dry. Um, so we kind of figure out what they drink and go from there. I think for me, with especially with this new space um, and 
being behind, well, we'll be behind the bar, you know, half the month to educate people on um, what, you know, Venice ciders and just my wines in general. I'm, we'll see how this goes, but I'm trying, I'm, I think I'm going to apply with a mentor of mine, uh, Bradford, the owner of Ordinaire. I would go taste with him, you know, twice a week, and I'll come in, he'll pour me a glass, and I'll ask him what it is, and he like, just want you to go sit down and just drink it and experience it, and I think this loops back into the first question in regards to um, expectation. And so I think for me, I want you just to people to taste and drink and just use their palate. And then we can walk backwards from there of what they're drinking. Yeah, I'd like to draft on that. I mean, expectations. It's, it's interesting because I, you know, coming from the standard wine industry, you know, I, I was trained uh, getting a master's degree in enology and then decided to completely do a 180. And so I have to unlearn all those things, and I find that I still have to do that with the people. And so they have all these preconceived notions, and VA is another one that's just like, oh, that's just such a sticky moment. And so it's like, how do I, how do I get something out of this guy? Like, you know, for instance, you bring a, a sparkling red wine. The first thing a standard wine guy is going to say is, you know, this is flawed because it has carbon dioxide. It's like, well, so I always make sure this is an intentionally sparkling red wine, and the word Lombrusco is handy for those that have ever tried such a thing. And funny that many people have tried that. They're like, oh, Lombresco, yeah, I like that, whatever. Whereas before, if you, if you bring it without that, so I'm just saying like, it is very helpful to have something that already exists um, to get them started to like it. And I'm talking about someone who's not, not a fan yet, <laughs> you know, in that case. But the ones that are the fans yet, like, you know, like Lou Weinshoff in LA, you know, he has the most esoteric wines. And his his base is so much fun because they're just like, we come here for just the weirdest shit, you know, and it's, it's like a creep show. They just show up and go, what's <laughs> this going to be, you know? It's really fun to watch that happen, and I don't, it's like candy for me. I'm just like, thank God, this is my family, you know? Yeah. I, mean, again, I mean, beer really is just like totally <laughs> different, different beverage because there's so many different, uh, like, I, like, in the styles, there are vastly different flavors, so you know, when somebody comes into our brewery, it's like, do you like imperial stouts with chocolate and like espresso? Like, they taste like chocolate and espresso, or do you want like a really crisp pilsner, or do you want something that tastes like gummy bears and um, is not sour at all? You know, like an IPA, or and then we go to the, like the barrel aged beers, and they're just like so many different um, different levels to flavor. Um, so it's, it's, yeah, just asking people what they like. I mean, my question for you is then how do you, how do people, how do you, in your experience, how do people, how do people navigate that, that space of that insane diversity of categories that are somewhat defined? How do you, how do people, how do you have people navigate that? The individual, like, styles and, yeah. um. And, and then your, like, deviations from those styles. Yeah, I don't, I mean, uh, I think, you know, you begin to give people tastes and see what they're drawn to. Um, yeah, I mean, I think uh, prompting people with what they're going to, to taste and, and um, giving them an expectation <laughs> rather than letting them fall into, like, some kind of, like, weird zone of, like, what am I, what am I drinking? This is weird. Um, or <laughs> Uh, yeah, um, just like seeing where things go, tasting, you know, I think that's what you guys were saying, like just giving people tastes and, and um, having a conversation. I think that's the wonderful thing about having a tap room. 
after having been around for six years is you have this face-to-face -face interaction with people where you uh, really get to form uh, a relationship over a few minutes. Uh, my next follow-up as well is, is uh, uh, tell me about some of these aha moments you've had with, with customers. Like some of my experience when I have customers who go, oh wow, holy shit, I get it. And they understand like, wow, this is something totally new for me and I, I understand that I'm willing to take this, I'm now willing to like go down this path with you. Can you talk a little bit about like some of your experiences with customers and how they've you know, like gone from maybe skeptics to maybe like believers in a way? Uh, we definitely have people um, that I do tastings with, either at the tasting room or the farmer's market, and they're like, I don't really like cider. I'm like, yeah, but if you had dry cider, and then you describe something as savory, and they just, they can't, they can't understand what's apple and pear with savory is like. Um, so an aha moment is many times people tasting your product and being like, that's not what I expected. That's really good. And it's like, yeah, you haven't uh, really entered the world of like dry ciders and perry. It's, it's wildly different. Um, my, ex my experience thus far that every time I've had opportunity to pour my wines, it's basically that's been everyone's response to everything I pour because I'm one, I'm working in Vermont, working with great varieties that people are not, you know, are still becoming educated on. And then on top of that, doing these co-fermentations and, and these long macerations with the mash of the apples, everything I've, which I think is fucking awesome that I could have that, every experience that I have is that. And, and changes people's perception of what they think wine with Vermont would be or beside it with these co-fermentations would be. It's, it, it's an opportunity that I feel that I get to educate and with, every <clears throat> with every conversation. And then hopefully they'll be normalized, so. For years ago, I had this sort of joke in my mind, but it was one of those jokes that kind of drives you crazy. And it's the standard way tastings would go. And I'm talking about people that, you know, have never really thought about natural wine before. And so they'll show up and I'll pour them a wine. And it's like, oh, mm, that's different. You know, <laughs> and they're tasting. And it's like, oh, great. You know, God, just kill me now. You know, so pour the second one. And, but then it takes, in this case, you know, other people in the wine industry would be like, why are you pouring so many wines? Sometimes I'll pour eight wines. And it's like, because it takes until wine number six. They don't even yeah. get the first four wines. Yeah. You could retaste them on those, and they're like, I don't know what the hell that was. And so, but at wine number six, they go, oh, I, always, I, I see what you're doing now. I see there's a similarity. I don't really understand what it is, but there's similarity in these wines. And then number seven, they'll like wine number seven. <laughs> It's crazy. <laughs> yeah, we, de we definitely run into that, too. Like, you know, if we pour three ciders, people are like, ah, oh, that was tart, tart, and tart. And then you pour six ciders, and they're like, wow, like, I really see the flavors that you pulled out in that one. But, like, you got to open all your precious bottles to get there. It happens sometimes. Totally. <laughs> I think my favorite moments are when people are just like, I, I hate beer. I don't like beer at all. And and then you give them something that they've never expected in a beer, you know, like a sour beer or um, a barrel-aged beer. And, and especially if they're somebody who's used to drinking wine, you know, that can be, uh, it has similarities in its acidity and the, you know, characteristics. And they're, you know, it's wonderful to have somebody who's delighted by that. And then you've totally shifted their expectations and the, you know, 
culture of their drinking habits, hopefully. Uh, so we're going to do kind of one more wrap-up question, then we'd love to open it up to questions from the audience. Um, and our last question is really thinking about that co-fermentation space almost philosophically, but what are the benefits of aligning these beverages, of creating things that are more than one or working in this space of experimentation? Well, well I, I'd just like to thank, for one, I'd like to thank the brewing industry I mean, sour beers, like who'd have thought? Yeah. Uh, I would just, I would just yeah. like pay homage because what I went through and then I go, how did anybody ever sell a sour beer? Like I don't even understand that. And so it's just, you know, the brewing people just are willing to have, you know, to expand their horizons. And so I, that was actually a lead in that I always had. I have a, another story, I have a Pinot Noir that had, it was an Enococcus fermented Pinot Noir. It's a 10 year old wine, but it had a, it had this foliage bacteria. And so I always lead in with that one about Brett beers. And it's like, well, it's the same thing. And they all get it. It's like, oh, oh, Brett beer. Oh, yeah, I get that. Even though they can't say enococcus, you know, which is kind of a weird word to start with anyway. But um, it's I, like, oh, my God, thank you. So I see the overlap in, in that, you know, when there's weirdos in every category, then weirdness is not just weird. It's like it's creativity, you know. And so why don't we call it something different? categories or even ingredients and raw materials from other categories as far as helping consumers understand what you're doing? Hmm. Well, yeah, I, I feel like it's, for me, it's just been interesting to see how um, beer has changed so quickly. I remember a few years ago, um, nobody had heard of a Goza, which is like a traditional German-style beer that... Um, also has a salinity to it. It's like a sour beer with with a kind of a salt in it, um, and nobody had ever heard of that. So, like, if I put that on a label, uh, nobody would understand what to expect in you know a bottle of beer that they bought. Um, but nowadays, so I, I think at that point in time, I think we said like traditional German sour beer with salt, and that was the style. And and now you see gozas like everywhere, and. Um, so it's been interesting to see how that um, has the, the shift in the community of, of drinkers um, in such a short period of time. But um, yeah, I don't know. As far as like overlapping language, it's just I think all of us are growing up in, this, in a similar like uh, moment of, you know, shifting expectations and those shifting pretty quickly like you know I, with cider I remember you know people being um like uh, like oh it's always like sweet it's sweet cider you know that's yeah. what you drink and now everyone's like oh can I get that funky cider yeah expectations have dramatically changed in the five years that I've worked at the cidery for the first year you're there or I, that I was there you get people who don't even understand what dry is like, what do you mean it's dry? I'm like, well, don't you know dry and sweet wine? Um, but we do, we definitely do some ciders um, that have different fruits in them, currants. Uh, we add hops to one of our cider 
ciders. Um, so the hopped cider is kind of like what we call our gateway cider uh, for beer drinkers who are kind of getting into the cider world. Um, so they so they can pull out those flavors that they know, uh, but it's it's paired with this like tart uh, tannic apple base. So it's definitely overlap. I think for me, it circles back to once again the conversation of expectation that we all I think agreed on on this panel and. For me to make to ferment um, with an ethos of you know tradition traditions of the old world and but yeah to be here and be in Vermont and to work with one hybrid grapes and also have opportunity to work with apples I'm also making something truly American in its way too that and with these this co fermentation and working these two fruit these two fruits together. And while also forcing someone to make choices with their palate and not with the expectation of what something should taste or look like. Can I add something about cider that um, she reminded me of? Uh, you know, I think it's so interesting, the confusion about cider. And I think, actually, I really had my own confusion uh, seven years ago, whatever, when I first started making cider. I was like, I didn't think it was beer but I just thought it had a whole different process. And I think as we know, like I love the story about, well, the grapes didn't work, so let's get the apples. It's like, that's the way it is. It's just another fruit, let's, you know, let's do that. It, the perception in, in, I don't know if that's so much in New York, but in California, because cider is always going with the beer distributors mainly, and it's in sort of a beerish package normally, and, and we're talking about sweet cider and big cider. And so people think it has a beer process. And that was the biggest shock to me that people thought, you know, that I'd give them cider and they're like, oh, I don't drink beer. And I was like, well, it's not beer, you know, it's, it's wine. Like, and Dan, I'm sure I could talk for days about this. But um, I, that was always shocking to me and still a common perception out there that I find. Well, maybe a question is like, what does it mean to be a beer and a wine? I don't, like, uh, you know, like they're vastly different um, ingredient bases, but ultimately it all, goes down to the fermentation of sugars into alcohols. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> it's like the New York state laws. If it's at a certain alcohol, it's a wine. It's like, oh, whatever. Yeah, making some prison hooch or something. You know, uh, um, something that I was thinking about is like, I think uh, as like a, as a beer maker, um, you know, years ago, we were like, oh, it's so cool how the terminology surrounding wine is so vast and um, and like you know made in you know the like sommelier like graphs and like of of all of the different terms and that just didn't exist for beer and I think in the back of our minds like me and my husband were always like yeah it would be so cool if we made that for beer and you know really like brought this like mentality of you know extreme like understanding and um, concentration to beer. And I think that was something that really like created the, you know, undercurrent um, within the, the, the brewery that we started. And, um, you know, I think I still am excited to do that, but at the same time, I, I think I've like mellowed a little bit and as I've gotten older and I'm just like, you know, just like, consume a beverage and enjoy it and taste it and you know you don't need to have this um you know like uh, years of education behind you it's just about enjoying something so yeah. i don't yeah i don't know i think we, we like 
they beer and wine are like maybe and cider are like maybe always trying to be each other but then ultimately being like no I am my own thing and maybe we all just like bring fermentation forward and as an idea um, and as the consumer becomes more educated there's less of a need to like really drive home this like idea of the artisanal and you know it's just like have a table wine have a table cider have a table beer drink it enjoy it don't spend a lot of money on it it's great <laughs> you know <laughs> great um, are there any questions from the audience here yeah go ahead That ultimately, like, really, like, I'd like it to form into a happy medium where everyone is simply enjoying something and uh, not, like, you know, with wine, it's always been this, like, you know, you have the, the presentation of uncorking a bottle and pouring it, and it's really expensive, well, lots of times in the U.S., and um, it's coming from, uh, you know, our parents like this was something that they really um, found to be valuable and showed the value of the person who's purchasing that thing which still is definitely there I mean you show your you're presenting yourself when you make a purchase of anything and that's definitely true when you purchase um, an artisanal product you're in then bringing it to your friends and you say this is a, like something that I value and um, I don't know if it's a, I, I don't think of it so much as a competition between wine and beer but more of everyone experimenting with the understanding of the product and what that means um, to the maker and the consumer and what it says about the culture I don't know if that's really answering anything but I <laughs> think about it a lot. <laughs> I don't know. Do you guys have any? I mean, packaging is really interesting because, like, I've worked at a winery um, as well in the Finger Lakes, and uh, I've been told that sometimes screw caps are better than corks because it gives you a better quality product. You're not going to let air in. You're not going to get, like, a corked flavor. Um, but as a even as a consumer myself I would never if I see a screw cap I'd be like ah it's cheap wine and, and same thing in the cider world if we're putting things in 750 milliliter bottles it's going to be read a lot differently than like a canned cider um, which is kind of wrong because you could have a really amazing product in a can um, sometimes it comes down to um, availability of you know if you even have a canning line or like if you have a, a one spout bottler and that's what you can do in your barn like that's what you do it's not about the presentation of having this nice glass necessarily it's I mean going back to the idea of expectations as a consumer the can says less money and a bottle says more money so for instance like um, a few weeks ago we released an imperial stout that would actually cost like us a lot of money to produce and um, at the time you know 
again, we're like only four months into our brick and mortar space. So we didn't have our bottling line up and running. And we were like, well, we'll put it into cans. And we were like, we're going to, I mean, it was like a really good deal, but it was still more expensive than, you know, like a lot of other canned beers. And um, people started complaining online about the prices of it. And we were like, this is such a good deal. Um, you know, you would get the same beer in a bottle and you'd spend like $18 on it and we're selling it to you for $6. So this is like a really good deal. But so I think that kind of like, you know, as much as a, it might be better for the cider or the wine um, to, to have a screw cap or be in a can, it's like ultimately you have to make a living off of it and figure out what people are going to, to, to like what the consumer will purchase. Because people are fickle, right? I mean, that's the whole thing where really the underlying current that we're kind of talking about. And I, I don't know, maybe this is too philosophical, but um, I always, when I hear that question or I hear someone go, you know, that beer's just trying to be, you know, something else that it's not or whatever, it's like, well, then I question the questioner or the complainer, you know, like, because then we all tend to run with that and like either defend it or whatever. And it's like, well, it's not even, it's a, not even a nonsensical question. It's just in this packaging. It makes it look cool, whatever, and that's what they that's what they want. I, I sell a cider in a 750 mil bottle, and so that means that it's it's easier for me with my distribution channels to just funnel that in, and it goes with the salesman. It goes in the same line, but there's certain places that will never buy that, and so that that beverage has a limited scope based on people's expectations and so then there's just the whatever it is the one percent or the ten percent who are experimental enough or you know just want to find something that's different and go well, why is that and then accept it as something that's interesting and go well hey that's cool kind of cool packaging like a clear bottle that's a wine bottle and it looks like a pet mat but it's a cider it's a basically a cider pet mat and it's just uh, <laughs> it's you know and like here we are it's, it's finding that target audience and then sticking with that instead of going and trying to talk people into whatever they they think that it that whatever it is to their perception from coming from what they know. Maybe it's also about rebellion. You know, you rebel against your parents, and in many ways, like the parent of beer in the United States is like Budweiser. So of course, you want to like as the new wave of beer, you want to rebel against what that is, which means you make fancy beer and you put it in fancy packaging and it's attempting to be more like wine in the presentation. And, um, and now we all did that. And now there's actually the rebellion against that. So, <laughs> you know, right now, like beer people, like the brewers are just like, all I want is a Pilsner. Just give me a Pilsner. That's all I want to drink. <laughs> I don't want to drink anything else. Well, this like flavorful beer, you know, you're just like, So the question is um, for each of you to talk about the merits of participating in a stylistic language. I mean, again, like going back to the wine.
wine sommelier thing, it's like there is this like vast language related to it. And um, I almost think that that could serve as a like a starting point for a, a language basically for all like beverage flavor. And the, but it, there are more flavors to be included in that. So of course, like with beer, there's just flavors that you would get that are never going to be a part of wine. So it's just like about filling in um, with more terms and then building a library related to that would be really amazing. Mm. Well, I have kind of a timeline story for that one. So it's like, you know, so 20 years ago, there was no conversation about natural wine. It was, uh, you know, in, in the American stratosphere of wine, we had the organic wine, which was in the 80s. And it was a bunch of California guys just going, okay, let's do it with no sulfur. And that's not really how you do it. You know, it takes, it takes a little more effort, a little more thought, and there's thing, more things that have to happen. And so, you know, the re results were not good necessarily um, in, in the far and wide perception. So in 96, when I started figuring out how to name my beverage, you know, it wasn't going to be organic wine. Um, it was, and there wasn't a term natural wine. So it was old world was the name that I pulled out of the atmosphere to, you know, that basically a tr to say traditional, but coming through, you know, my great grandfather to my grandfather to me. Um, and so, but that's still very difficult because I have to start from scratch with virtually every person. So it's just a, you know, it's like oh, too much talking. And so I ha and I literally have too much story to get out. So I sort of pick and choose what I want to deliver to somebody. But now we have the term natural wine. So natural wine is a term that makes it easy to discuss what we're talking about instead of, you know, what formerly was called organic wine or what somebody calls old world wine or whatever. And so it makes it vastly easier, yet there's still super big challenges with that term as a term. Um, and so, you know, nothing's perfect, but as long, I, you know, they always say if you can give something a name, then you can actually understand it. And so I think a name is helpful and the, the, um, the vocabulary or the, the common, I forgot what, <laughs> the way you phrased it, but um, it is really helpful to have ways to discuss these things. And even, you know, like the weird wine, because there's, there's certainly weird wines within the natural wine category or, or weird beers within the craft brew. Um, and so, like, how do you discuss those? Maybe a term will come for just those. And I think that would be great. Um, um, but I guess we do have that Brett beers, but, you know, there's barrel aged and whatever. So it's just, you know, then you get into more detail and then someone can't just be ignorant anymore. They have to kind of learn more. And some people aren't willing to do that. Um, but some people also love to have those terms. So and perhaps the more the better. But at first, one overarching term makes it easier for the layperson to get in on the ground floor. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Especially we navigating the world where natural wine has been. It's been very controversial. And, and we're, but I feel, I agree. I think it's a word that it was necessary to group in. Um, like it's. Like I said earlier, I make wine using traditional old world methods, and that could mean an array of things. And I know what that means. I know you know what that means. I don't know who like who does or do not know, know what that means. But now we have the word natural wine, which is all about education, um, which is I think for all of, at least for our part, it's been the hardest thing is educating people on what that means. And um, but I think in the attempt and the effort and having you know with Isabel with having raw. 
now, now we've started in well, first Berlin and, now, and then now Montreal and LA, New York, and to see the enthusiasm of people out there. And they still may not understand exactly what that means, but as a lease, it's a word that can get people out there and get excited and then be educated about it. Uh, yeah, language can be really tricky, and I think sometimes you have to use certain words and kind of figure out uh, the feedback based on those words. So we used to call our cider uh, naturally fermented, but it, people would just totally skim over the word natural, like they didn't care what that meant. And then when you start calling uh, your product wild fermented, then it's like weird, it's wild. Like people, <laughs> people walk up, you know, at the market, they're like, what is wild? And you know, it's so you kind of have to play around and figure out uh, what's gonna attract people um, without uh, kind of tainting your product to be something it's not. Um, and that kind of also uh, reminds me of like flavor descriptors, which are really well known, I guess, in, uh, in the wine world, um, where you can have all these descriptors on a bottle, uh, passion fruit, slate, all these other things. Uh, but sometimes it's better for the person to actually taste it and figure out what they're tasting because taste is subjective. Not everyone tastes th uh, the same flavors, so uh, it can be tricky. question is, what are the challenges of the next wave or of the future of each of these beverages or movements? Um, maybe like as a, a bridge between that question and the question before, because I was thinking about um, language and um, something that's like, you know, uh, with your um, sour beer coming on the stage was kind of a big deal, you know, beer drinkers weren't used to that flavor and it shifted everybody's expectations of what beer could be. But um, it brought a lot of, um, in terms of language, it brought a lot of customer confusion um, because there is a really big difference between you know somebody who's making sour beer with one method versus uh, another more time-consuming method. And um, so something that's come out of that and something that I think the future of um, craft breweries are going to, and myself, are going to continue ha to have issues with is, is the language surrounding that, how people are describing their products on a label, and also now trademarking. Um, so for instance, like Allagash trademarked the word cool ship, which is a traditional method of making spontaneously fermented beer. Um, so now nobody except for Allagash can use the word cool ship on their label. Um, but it's like a really good way of describing what somebody should expect to taste flavor-wise. So I think um, as <laughs> we get into this like new era of beer and cider and wine, you're going to see like more competition within these um, the, the the naturally fermented wines, and 
the um, mixed fermentation beers that, you know, people are trying to, to kind of like figure out how to describe things to the customer, but in doing that are also um, becoming more litigious. I don't know. It's a little weird. Um, well, it's funny because I was sitting here thinking, well, we're kind of still in the wave. And I don't even see the, the next wave. But right. a couple, couple things mm -hmm. just came to me. Well, we got um, um, the Wine Without Borders. Oh. Um, there's a few things that are like, so we're seeing the horizon. And, uh, you know, perhaps you could, it could be said that in general, natural wine is stylistically limited to super fruity fresh wines across the board. And so that as a style, so we're, what we're seeing is new people, new players jumping in and doing that style to make the most fresh super next thing. And then I think we're going to see people branching out of that and into other categories within, say, the natural wine category. And, you know, the, the comments that I kept hearing over the last two days pouring it raw were, you know, Nobody shows a ten-year-old wine, you know, or at least from California, and or uh, um, you know, a super skin contact dark, whatever. Um, and so those are categories that I think will become more relevant, and um, and maybe sought after. And that's probably going to be the leading, you know, one percent that kind of branch out and check it out. But um, uh, you know, that's one aspect to it. But th the other that comes up to mind is that I come from a, you know, a quote-unquote standard appellation. And there's a, it's also a new movement, this maybe Crystal will chat about here, with, with uh, you know, wines without borders and what can happen with wine that just had basically no home style, you know, with a, with a name as far as an appellation on a label, which, you know, then you think it has no value. Right. Um, but that's one thing that natural wine is certainly doing is creating these crazy, you know, things that look like that and you look at it and you go what's that you know and so if it's in that bottle it doesn't matter if it's from Russian River Valley or from here it just looks amazing and so let you know how do I get my hands on some of that yeah, yeah you touched on some things I was thinking about while we we're sitting here and for me I, I agree the biggest challenge as we're I mean the for natural wine in America we're we're still right here but I think the biggest challenge is for producers and new producers to actually make something uh, with intent and purpose and not just uh, doing something because they think that's the what they should be making. Um, I, and I would like to see that too to, at Raw to see, uh, you know, I know Deirdre, like, and Deirdre would be one of them. I know I mean, she has wine, they're 10 years old, they're tasting well. And I think people would probably would not know that or assume that, that there are producers out there that are making wines and uh, natural wines with intent and purpose. And I look forward to that day when those can be uh, sought after. Uh, second, to your point two, um, one, uh, for me, natural wine starts from first from the farm. I believe that wine is farming. And for producers to be okay, or for growers to be okay, or even producers, you know, if they can't, they don't have access to land where they're sourcing their fruit, to be open to work in places else that are not, that's not California and Washington and Oregon and be okay to just actually ferment and make something delicious, not, not caring what the variety is or where it's from. And I think that's a long journey for people. Not everyone's gonna move from California and choose to make wine in Vermont like me. I'm happy that I did. And I hope, if anything, that that can be inspiring to people because it's only with, only, that's what it's gonna do is have, have, let us have access to more delicious wines and change our perceptions and 
have new normalizations of how we think about wine um, and fermentation and also farming. Because if you're saying you're, you're, you know, you're passionate about making passionate about making natural wine, you should be passionate about farming. And if you don't have access to that, and but there's you can move to Texas or you can move to Vermont or you can move to New York and there's land there, then why wouldn't you pursue that to make wine in the ethos that you say you believe in? And I, and I think that's going to be the biggest challenge of people doing things straight from their heart and because they, they're actually doing what they say they really want to do. Okay. I think we're um, a little bit out of time. The food is ready, I think. So... <laughs> Let's continue the conversation. No, 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 Thank you all <laughs> over there while we're eating and hopefully drinking more of this awesome stuff. Thank you all so much for being here on the panel and all of you for coming and getting weird with us. Um, and we stay for a second because we're going to do the raffle drawing. Um, and then do you have something else to say? Are you good? All right. We're going we're gonna to do the raffle drawing and we'll eat and drink. And Thank you. Hey guys, I know everyone is super hungry and thirsty, I hope. Um, but as you walked in, you probably saw we're doing a giveaway from Brooklyn Brew Shop for home cider making and beer making kits. Um, I'm Hannah Forden. I'm the program manager here at HRN. So nice to meet you all. Thank you for coming. Um, before I do the drawing, I just want to, again, say thank you for coming. Thank you to our engineer, Matt Patterson, for making everyone sound so good. Um, if you want to hear the recorded version of this panel, we're going to send out an email to everyone who purchased tickets um, with a link so that if you want to do some homework and re-listen, you're welcome to do that. I also encourage you to check out our 35 weekly shows, um, which range in topic about pretty much everything you can think of related to food and beverage. So if you like this, chances are you're going to find something else you like. Um, and if you're interested, become a member. We're a nonprofit and... Everything we do here, including this, is made possible because we have really generous supporters, individuals and companies. Um, so if you're interested, check it out online or send me an email. Okay, without further ado, the first one we're going to draw is the cider kit. Not looking. Okay, the winner is Alfie Alcantara. Congratulations! So next year, you'll be on this panel talking about your cider. Okay, and for the beer kit. The winner is Anna Lien. Yay! Okay, and without further ado, you guys can head on over and enjoy some delicious food from Samisa. If you want more drink tickets, you know where to find me at the front there, um, $5.